0: Welcome to Hardware Addicts, a proud member of the Destination Linux Network. Hardware Addicts is the podcast that focuses on the physical components that power our technology world. In this episode, we're going to cover Intel taking the fight to AMD. And in our brain filler, we're going to discuss thermal paste, why it's important, and how do you maintain it. And then finally, Wendy continues her segment called Camera Corner, where we will learn about sensor sizes. So many of you have commented already on how much you love the first Camera Corner segment. So that is awesome. And if you're turning in for the first time, please make sure to go back and listen to episode three, where it all starts. So sit back, relax, and plug in, because Hardware Addicts starts now. I'm Ryan, your tech guide through the universe. And with me today are my two co-hosts, Wendy, our resident photographer extraordinaire and hardware enthusiast, along with Michael, the software sage and hardware Padawan. So let's find out what everyone's been up to this week, what kind of tech adventures you've been going through. So Wendy, how did you feed your addiction?
1: Well, I've been trying to decide what part I was going to cover this week. And so it comes from... A conversation I had with a fellow mom today, she found out that I really enjoy technology. And so we got talking about it and she was thinking that she needed to buy a new computer. Her system right now is running Windows 7 and she's worried about some of the vulnerabilities that are there. And as I was talking to her, I brought up the fact that while new software or new hardware is absolutely amazing, sometimes we can still use the existing hardware we have. And I told her that I can bring over a laptop with Linux on it and show her what it looks like and save her some money and not have to be buying new hardware. They could keep the existing hardware they have and make more use of it.
0: Absolutely. And plus you have, if you're talking about they had a laptop in this case, right?
1: Uh, No, this is a desktop for them, but every time they ask her brother-in-law about, you know, what they would need to get in getting a new computer where they've been knowing that Windows 7 was coming to the end of life. He's always, as a big hardware guy, recommending really expensive stuff. Uh. And I'm like, uh, yeah, we don't need to do that, especially where they do almost all of their work, their document saves in a web browser. Right. They don't need what this brother-in-law was recommending.
0: Yeah, certainly Linux is a great alternative for MacBooks and other computers that maybe are too old to run Windows 10 at this moment. So that's a great alternative. But also upgrading that hardware, if you have a desktop machine, some of the cases are proprietary cases or they're really hard to fit external components in depending on the type of machine it is. But that's always an option as well. But you're right. There are a lot of people who assume everybody needs gaming level specs. and. That's not the case. And in fact, you know, AMD and Intel and others realize this as well. And that's why they have so many options out there now for upgrading where you can get a CPU for $100 or less. I mean, it's insane. The prices on some of the and they're fully capable of doing what most people would use a computer for outside of gaming or video rendering and that type of thing. It could be done on them, but not as much. So upgrading definitely is a good option, too.
2: All right. So, Michael, what hardware quests have you been on? I have been doing something where I've been like compartmentalizing my workflow and my just my system in general. Like as you know like when typically most systems have this your operating system, your data, your your files are all on the same drive and that's fine for the most part, but it does limit the flexibility and the reliability and more just I guess just the compartmentalization of it to just know that this one section is solid and not necessary in certain cases. Like for example, I have migrated most of my data into separate drives, so they're all in uh, separate SSDs because I wanted my data for like files and work files and like video editing files and all that stuff to be in one drive. Then I have my all of my games on another drive. Then I put uh, my operating system on another drive, and then I have other stuff that's like miscellaneous temporary work files on a separate drive. So I have this set up this way that I can make sure that if I need a certain particular thing for that given moment, I can use that drive. But if I don't need it, I can kind of trick myself to not have it. So for example, let's say I don't necessarily need to have my games all the time accessible. So I have that particular drive turned off so that when I go to my file manager, I don't see the game drive and you know get the urge to play games and not be productive. So (laughs) that's that's just a way of tricking myself, but (laughs) it's a, it's just a tricking of myself thing, but the other things are more valuable to what I wanted to do, but that was just like a little extra bonus.
0: I like that. A lot of people are separating their games specifically aside from their standard main drive. And this has to do with the convenience. Number one, if you're ever reloading a new OS or anything, games take some of the longest to download out of, everything and number two you know if you're using ssds like you are in your case you're really not going to take a speed hit at all by having them moved over because some people will keep their games on their main drive because that's the only ssd for instance that they have and there's a little bit of a performance boost at least in opening the game and running uh, the game initially with having an ssd say over a spinning drive
2: so that's actually an interesting point because when you said when you're saying that like i actually used to have the games on a separate drive, but it was a spinning hard disk and it took a lot longer to load things. And it took a lot longer to do various different game related stuff. And I moved it to an SSD and you can't even tell the difference now. It's yeah. awesome. That's fantastic.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: So I've been doing that. And uh, I also wanted to point out, cause like, you know how there's, you saying the different cases have different uh, s- specific proprietary approaches to certain things or they can't fit certain stuff. I noticed something. That isn't necessarily important and most people would never think about this, but this case is beautiful for what I want it for because it has two optical drives and, or two optical bays, I guess. And this is most, I've seen a lot of cases now that have no optical drives at all. No 5.2 or whatever.
0: Five and a quarter. Yeah.
2: yeah. And it was because and I think that that's kind of disappointing because there's something I found that is it's called the FlexiDock and it allows me to have all of these different drives in a single dock that has individual power buttons for each drive so i could, when i say i turned off the the game drive i just turned it off from that FlexiDock and then the rest of the system is good good to go without having to you know open the case take off the side of the case or whatever so to explain
0: this to folks, it's a docking station. There's some that take up just one, five and a quarter bay. There's some, I think, that take up to two of the bays. And you put your hard drives in there and you connect your SATA cables into that bay instead of going directly to the drive. And right. in that in that flexi-dock, you basically have, some of them have the ability just to eject. Uh, some have ability to have power buttons like the one that you have. You have all your drives, and if you're not using something, Or maybe you're installing a new OS and you're afraid it'll override another drive. You could just eject your drive with all your data on it so you don't have to worry about it ever overriding. And then you would boot your machine and it's not going to accidentally override anything because there's no connection to it. It's such a fantastic solution for people out there to check out.
2: I love
1: this I've been looking for a new case. And because of how much Michael has loved his, I... I've been making sure that I'm going to get one that's got the five and a half inch bay. So I can do that <laughs> on my next case.
2: Nice. It's actually kind of weird how many don't have it anymore. So many of the really good looking ones don't have a base f- at all anymore. Like it's just, yeah, like, I have
1: to, you have to search specifically for the ones that have those. Bayes. Yeah.
2: And I, the one I found, uh, I have an old uh, fractal case and it has two bays and I looked at their latest version of the same model only has one, but at least there's one, like there's some of the, yeah. you know, zero, like they're so heavy on the glass that they don't have any, but this is a, is a cool dock. Like the, having that as an option to be able to turn off stuff, turn it back on or, and, and one of the coolest thing is that it's hot swappable. So if I have two different data drives, I can put the, you know, if I'm working on a client work and I, I want it separate from my personal data, I can have two different drives and just put it in and out. It's, it's a cool, uh, it's a cool piece of hardware, I think. And I, uh, and I, we could, we could have links in the show notes if people are interested in checking it out.
1: Well, Ryan, what have you been up to this week?
2: So I got to purchase a new
0: monitor this week, which always makes Ooh. me excited. So I have a new, a Zeus PB two seven seven Q, which is a 27 inch 2560 by 1440. So two K 75 hertz, one millisecond response time monitor. Now, Up to this point, I had another older monitor that I had off to the side for doing Destination Linux or other podcasts that uh, shows that I'm a part of. And that's where I would put maybe comments and other things that I wasn't directly looking at, but it actually sat on a separate desk because I was out of space. I couldn't have two full-size monitors on this one desk that I have. So it sat on a separate desk, kind of on the side, and you'd glance over to the right to see it. So I knew I needed something that I could put into a vertical position where you basically turn the monitor completely vertical. And this monitor had that, and I wanted to match the 2K because I'm just a huge fan of 2K. It just looks absolutely beautiful and also have something that had a quick response time. Well, that was just an added bonus because honestly, you're not going to really game in vertical. And it's worked out perfect. So now I have both monitors on my desk at the same time. Um, I have the ability to, both of them to have in 2560 by 1440. Now the monitor I had, the main monitor that I have is the MSI Optics Mag 321 CQR. It is a beautiful curved 2K 144 hertz monitor. But one problem that I have now is everything is so much clearer on the vertical ASUS PB277Q monitor When I move it over there, it's just so much brighter and crisp that now it kind of makes my favorite monitor up to this point look a little dull. So I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what to do now. I guess I just need to buy more hardware.
1: (laughs) That's the excuse I use anyway.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So just in case people are curious, the refresh rate and the response time are two really important factors when you're purchasing a monitor. Refresh rate, number of times a screen displays a new image every second. The higher, the better in this case. So most are around 60, but I have one here that's 144, and that new monitor I was talking about was 75. Then you've got the response time, which is the time it takes your monitor to shift from one color to another and cuts down on blurring and ghosting and that thing, and lower is better in that case. So this has one millisecond response time. But those are two factors you would want to be looking at along with resolution if you're in the market for a new monitor.
2: This episode of Hardware Addicts is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimizing, managing, and scaling apps easy with intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrator firewalls, load balancers, and more. You can get all this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. I'm a big fan of DigitalOcean. We're all a big fans of DigitalOcean. Oh, yeah. And... Because they they, they even make it like super easy to manage the droplets and do like snapshotting, which, by the way, snapshotting is so nice. You can create backups and snapshots of the droplets before you do upgrades or anything. So you have like peace of mind. And if something goes wrong, you can just go back to the previous snapshot in minutes without having to worry about, you know, if you lost any data or whatever, because it's it's all still there. Uh, Thankfully, I've never had had to use the snapshots, but it's awesome to know that I can have them if I want them. Another great thing that DigitalOcean has is over 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software, languages, and frameworks. You can get started on DigitalOcean for two months for free with a $100 credit by going to do.co DLN. That's do.co slash DLN. And again, you can get started with that, Digi- that DigitalOcean credit with $100 for two months by going to do.co DLN. And thanks again to DigitalOcean for sponsoring Hardware Addicts.
0: All right, so for our core story this week, I noticed something sneaky Intel was up to. I wanted to get your opinion on it. So we know that Intel's taken some hits recently in its reputation, especially with their new desktop processor line compared to AMD's new Threadripper line. We've kind of covered that in other episodes, but as the benchmarks keep pouring out, the worse it's looking for Intel's lineup of CPUs. At least in comparison, so AMD now reigns supreme in the benchmark game, which isn't everything. And I've said that well before that benchmarks aren't everything. You really need that real-world performance um, outside of just benchmarks, because not everything is optimized to work with certain hardware. So, but even in the real-world circumstances, AMD's just kind of killing it. But where has AMD been weakest? and it's laptop offerings. To this day, I still get people messaging me, hey, what's a good AMD Ryzen laptop out there? And while we've heard and we've talked about on the show the partnerships AMD's making with the laptop manufacturers, with everything going on with manufacturing slowing down because coronavirus and other things, Intel still clearly dominates this market, and it's probably the biggest market segment out there. Laptops outsell desktops by a big margin. So I found it really interesting when I started seeing some news about the Intel putting a Core i9 10980HK which is a beast uh into a laptop and apparently they're also going to throw in a GeForce 2080 super super as Michael would say. Uh exactly. Uh, <laughs> GPU was, I was waiting there. for it. So I hate the super lineup name, <laughs> and a lot of people have. But given, it gives
2: you the chance to say things. Like, super.
0: Yeah, I mean it's. I guess it's better it's than ten nine eighty HK. At least they're trying something there. Well, I mean,
2: to, to be fair, it is already a twenty eighty RTX. Also, then they add the super on top because it's, it's a new version of the same thing. That's also it's just it's slightly better, but not really.
0: So it is interesting, the super lineup of GPUs making its way to mobile and Intel's flagship 14 nanometer processor is headed there as well. And I think this is a pretty good shot against AMD right now, considering how few offerings, now there are some, but how few offerings there are in the laptop market.
1: The first thing I think of when I look at this CPU and GPU combination in a laptop, As someone who's been price-checking laptops lately, holy crap, is this going to be extremely expensive.
0: (laughs) It's funny you say that because that was my reaction too when I heard it. I was like, this is going to be such an enthusiast laptop if it comes out with these type of specs. I mean, you're talking several thousand dollars uh, to pick this up at least and the weight of it. I just have to believe this thing just to get the cooling Right, is going oh, yeah. to weigh a lot.
1: That's a lot of heat.
0: It's a lot of heat, not only from the 2080, but also from the Intel processor itself. Generally in the laptop world, they will throttle these down. You know, the differences between having a the same super 2080 in your desktop and uh, in a laptop is you don't have the giant three fans that sit on top of that GPU inside your laptop. So they have to do a lot with piping. They have to do a lot with the fans that they do have and how they basically architect the, uh, or construct the cooling within the machine to make it as efficient as possible. And they'll generally throttle it down quite a bit, which is why you're always going somebody with a 2080 Super in their desktop is going to be much faster than the 2080 in the laptop. And that's generally what causes that. Now, this is also on the heels of AMD getting ready to release its 4,000 series of CPUs, which is 8 cores, 16 threads, 7 nanometer. We know how much we love that. 4.2 gigahertz and up to 12 megabytes of cache. And get this all at a 15 watt TDP. So to compare this to the i9-10980HK, you're looking at 45 watt TDP. And that wattage creates heat. And that heat you have to get rid of somehow. So it's, you know, a pretty great offering, I think, from Intel to kind of have the flagship and own, come in and kind of own the laptop market, which is where most of the sales are. So it will be interesting to see what vendor they choose to kind of produce this thing together. But I thought it was interesting that they were, I thought it was a pretty smart move on Intel's part to kind of go this route with all of the negative attention they've had recently with AMD.
2: Yeah, I think this is it's a good idea. And I mean, especially considering they can't, they still kind of dominate this. And the big push this year from CES is AMD announcing that they're going to be pushing really hard on laptops. So this is like a good preemptive strike from Intel to, you know, kind of battle that in a way. But when you are talking about the heat, just like the heat is going to be generated, the, the power of these these different pieces and how expensive it is. This is going to be like massively battery draining too, right? Oh, Oh, absolutely.
0: Yep. This is a big issue with gaming laptops is, you know, the bigger battery that you put in it, the more weight you're going to have. So there are gaming laptops that get decent battery life. They weigh a ton. They're huge. They're really desktop replacements. The thing I don't like about laptops being desktop replacements is that a lot of people won't go in and try to upgrade or repair their laptops. And it's possible, but not in the same way they do with their desktops. So you have this all this beautiful hardware and after a couple of years, if something goes wrong, or maybe the the GPU goes out, people throw it in the trash or you know it just ends up sitting in a closet forever. Desktop, you're more likely to upgrade in those type of things. So I'm not a huge fan of looking at laptops as a desktop replacement. In some cases it makes sense, but I would rather recommend people go out and build a gaming desktop and then just have a light, you know, laptop for taking around and maybe doing some lighter gaming and activities on it just because of the upgrade factor alone. That's actually
2: a a great point. I that's exactly what I do. I I originally, I learned my lesson the hard way because I bought a gaming laptop or what is it? Yes, it It was a gaming laptop. It was a desktop replacement laptop and it was really bulky and it had all the things, but the battery life was just trash. And this was like, this was years ago, but I still have that laptop in my closet. Just as you said, because I switched to doing a desktop and having my laptop being like a secondary travel thing. And it's just, it's just makes more sense because I'm also not using it that much. So why, um, you know, also I, I think that the most important thing about a laptop is that this is, this is good that they're doing this in terms of like business decision. But I always looked at laptops as being like very uncomfortable to use for any reasonable amount of time because you're, Either you have the keyboard up really weird and awkward to type, and see the, cam- the screen in a position that's normal, or you're looking down, cricking your neck for hours. It doesn't seem like a practical thing, anyway.
0: Yeah, I think people who use the desktop replacement will generally get a dock or something and have the external monitors and stuff there. And you know, and there's some cases certainly that people would need a portable desktop, essentially all the power of a desktop, but move around, for instance, you know, graphic designers that need to travel and those type of things. This machine, though, is just going to absolutely scream. It's also going to absolutely probably get so hot you won't be able to hold it on your lap and or it's going to be so thick it's not really going to be very comfortable to have anywhere. But I I do think, like you said, it's going to be um, I think it's a pretty good move from them on their standpoint. And, you know, this processor is nothing to laugh at here. Eight cores and 16 threads, 3.1 gigahertz base clock with a 5 gigahertz boost clock. I think in the laptop, it's going to probably stay a lot closer to that 3.1 usual and probably won't boost very much to that 5 gigahertz. Again, uh, I would be surprised if they come up with a cooling solution for that. But 16 megabytes of L3 cache, so that's beating out the Ryzen 4000 series, mobile series, which is only going to have 12 megabytes of cache on it. But again, you got that higher wattage there pushing uh, on a lot of that to do with being on that 14 nanometer. So this will be really interesting to see how this heats up. But ultimately, hopefully it's good for the consumer. Although if you're looking at buying hardware, I really recommend you start picking some stuff up now because with the coronavirus and the impacts it's having on suppliers You can expect, I know I talked a few episodes back about RAM increasing when you were talking about doing a hardware buy, Wendy. I think everything is going to increase in price. And what happens is retailers will start gouging on the prices. So even if they're getting it for cheaper because supply is so limited, they're going to keep raising the prices. We saw this especially during the Bitcoin mining gold rush. If you remember, oh, yeah. you could not walk into a store and even buy a GPU. Everything that was of basically a high-quality graphics card was off the shelf. It was impossible to find, and people were paying four or $500 over retail to pick up some of these cards. And I think we could be right back into a similar situation for a while. You should have hit buy, Wendy.
1: I should have. Gosh dang it, I should have. I'll, I'll have to do some looking again, because oh, I really want to build a new computer, especially after my, after my adventures with doing some video again this last week and seeing just how much my computer does not like editing this higher quality quality video. Yeah. makes me wish I would have built that system.
0: Yeah. Well, you can, you still have time. Hopefully it hasn't hit the prices yet, but if you are noticing slowness in your machine, you know, it could be caused by thermal paste one of the brain fillers I wanted to bring in since we talked about coolers last week is thermal paste or what some call thermal grease itself. So most people, if you've ever built a machine, knows what thermal paste is. It's that stuff that's in a tube that you put between your CPU and your heatsink. The reason it's needed is the heat spreader on top of the CPU is not perfectly flat. It's got little divots. It's got little uh, imperfections in it that you probably can't see with your naked eye because it looks all shiny, but they're there thermal grease fills in those gaps, helps make sure the heat is transferred away perfectly. Now, there are tons of different formulas for making this stuff, and many companies have their own secret sauce of proprietary products that contain carbon powders, silicone, ceramic materials. However, a lot of people don't know that thermal paste doesn't last forever. And if you're starting to have issues with slowness, if you're starting to have overheating problems, it could very well be that your thermal paste has met its end of life. Even on the tubes themselves, it'll tell you that it has an expiration date on a lot of the thermal paste out there. And the reason is because at a certain point, it just starts harden and turns to this crusty substance. And it really doesn't do very good at dissipating that heat anymore. So if you're technically competent, replacing your thermal paste is no big deal at all. Personally, I love Noctua. Again, just like the fans, they also make a kit that has their fantastic thermal paste and some wipes in it. And the wipes are great because you don't want something that's gonna leave lint and other things behind that are going to impact that perfect seal. It comes with wipes, you just wipe off the current thermal paste and you'll know if it's really uh, bad when you take off that fan, you see all that crusty gook and everything else underneath. I've put pictures of some of the ones I've done replacement in in my Telegram group, and Michael, you've seen those. It, it can get pretty bad when people don't replace this stuff.
2: Yeah, I didn't really realize how bad it could be until you started showing those photos. And it's it seems kind of nasty. I didn't know. Obviously, I'm the non hardware person, so it's not shocking that I didn't know this. But I didn't know that they it did have an expiration date. When we were talking about you know setting you know preparing for the episode and stuff, I looked at my older. I, I replaced my hardware recently a couple months ago, but I looked at the older. Uh, hardware when I took it out and, and like took off the heat sink to see it, it, it definitely needed it. And that might be why it was getting slower. Uh, Cause it looked like it was kind of like a rock in some ways. Yeah, absolutely.
1: It's definitely a time to do mine. It's been, the system's been up for about five years, so it, it's time to reapply.
2: Yeah.
0: So this is actually something people in who are technicians argue about all the time. I've seen people say you need to replace it every year. I've seen people say, don't replace it until you start noticing you're having problems. So I generally give the advice in between in my years of doing this, between four and six years, this includes your laptop, you should have your thermal paste replaced. Meaning you either take it to a shop if you're not savvy enough to do it yourself and have them do it. A shop that you trust, not like Geek Squad or anything like that. And... or do it yourself. And like I said, if you get Noctua NTH2 is the thermal paste I love to use right now. There are other brands that people will swear by or better and all this, but uh, you do get what you pay for in thermal paste. That is one area where they're correct. Well, people can argue about which one they like to use the most. If you buy really cheap thermal paste, you're going to maybe have more problems than dealing with just that crusty stuff. So get a nice quality thermal paste it's not very expensive. The high quality stuff's like ten to twelve dollars versus you know the cheap stuff. You get six tubes for four bucks. Just stay away from that. Spend a little what? extra money. How? What? That's
2: ridiculous. You want me to? Why would spend you need 12? that much
1: thermal paste?
2: <laughs> yeah, but exactly. But I'm going to spend twelve dollars every four to six years. That's just too much. It's insane <laughs> to protect your thousands <laughs> of dollars worth of components. Exactly.
0: So this is the one time not to be cheap. Do not want to use paper towels or anything else. If you're not going to get the wipes like I recommend, use like a coffee filter or something that's not going to leave lint behind. I also see so many videos on YouTube where people are getting the extra pieces of thermal paste off using a Q-tip. Q-tips leave stuff behind all the time. It gets caught on a little snag in the corner and they're leaving pieces of Q-tip all in their thermal paste. It's a disaster. These are well-respected channels I see doing this. Do not use Q-tips. Use those wipes, something that's not gonna leave lint behind and you'll be good. And I suggest when you're reapplying, just use the P method. I think it's the easiest one to remember. You've got the line methods and everything else to putting thermal paste on. Just put in the middle of your CPU a pea-sized dab of your thermal paste. That's all you need. And you can put the thermal paste away, remount your CPU fan. You're going to be good for another four to six years.
2: It'll be awesome. Yeah. It's actually kind of funny because there's the, like all the tips on YouTube or Sometimes they tell you to here's a line or you need to get a, a thermal paste spreader and all this other stuff. And then I sent you a message when I got my new hardware. And you were, and I was like, so how do I just give me the, the quick rundown of the thermal paste? And I know it's going to be complicated, whatever. And you're like, you just make it the size of a P. You mean like an like a English P or something? Or like, yeah okay well that's simple done
0: yeah now there's a lot of people who have done you know different studies to show the difference between the line and the p and they got you know 0. 0.015 less degrees by using this zigzag method or whatever but the, the p is it's fine just use the p it's the easiest
1: <laughs> just use the p just going to be your new slogan
0: i need a t-shirt that says that
1: yes <laughs> get on it michael
0: consider it done <laughs> All right, Wendy, people are excited about Camera Corner, and this week you're going to school us on sensor sizes. So this is where me and Michael get to si- sit back, and both of us get to be the Padawans of
2: your knowledge. And I assume I was- that the sensor sizes are going to be tall, grande, venti. Is that <laughs> right? Uh,
1: no, we're, we're not ordering coffees here. Oh,
2: okay. Got and gotcha, we're gotcha.
1: definitely not ordering five bucks coffees here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> For sure. <laughs>
1: I was so thrilled with some of the feedback that came from the last episode and this camera corner, and people saying how much they had got from just going over the different types of cameras. So that has completely made my week. I am so glad that the listeners are getting something out of this corner, and we're about to pack your brains with a little bit more information. You. Yeah. So, everybody is familiar with a teeny tiny small camera sensor and that's the one in your cell phone, right? You pack around a sensor with you all day long, all the time. And why do they put that sensor in there? So the NSA because can they spy can on use. us. Absolutely. Okay. No. They use the small <laughs> sensor because it keeps your device small. And that's one thing we've been going for in recent years is how thin can they make these devices. And one way they do that is put in a tiny sensor. But when we're looking at our cameras, there's three main sensor sizes that you'll run into. And the first one, which is what most professionals use, is what we call full frame. And this term comes from the 35 millimeter film. So if you were to pull out some film and look at the size of each image, that is roughly what the sensor size is in a full frame camera. It's 36 by 24 millimeters. Next size down would be a crop sensor or also called ASPC. Now for most companies, this would be a 23.6 by 15.6 millimeters, but they're actually just a little bit smaller in Canon with a 22.2 by 14.8 millimeters. The smallest that you'll get in Most of the cameras you'll find is called a micro four thirds. It's 17.3 by 13 millimeters. Now, what does all this mean? If you're going to buy a camera and you see it's got a crop sensor in it, what does that mean for you? Well, the larger the sensor, the more light you're letting in to hit that sensor. You have to have a lens that's bigger in order to cover that sensor. So in order to see everything on that lens, we day-to-day, our normal view would be considered a 55-millimeter lens on a full-frame sensor.
0: So when I look at some of the advertising, say for the new iPhone 11 Pro Max, which was supposed to have this professional quality camera inside of a iPhone, and I was looking at the specs just now and it showed... 26 millimeter sensor, but then it says the word equivalent, which I think is really interesting. So there, is this something that helps with letting, when you say letting light in, is this something that helps with low light shots that you're taking?
1: And some of that really depends on the lens you're using. And it depends on the technology of the sensor. So we can take a sensor from 10 years ago And compare it to the sensor of today, even though they'll have the exact same megapixels, because of the increases in technology, you will actually get more detail from the newer sensor, even though megapixels are the same. Interesting. And field of view is is definitely different when you're looking at different sensors. I mean, most people are like, what does that mean? Well, you know, if you use an ultra wide lens, you're going to see a lot. Sometimes you get a lot of distorted effects and the lenses you buy will differ for what sensor you have. So if you want your normal field of view on a crop sensor, that's what the middle ground or entry levels for a lot of DSLRs are, are this crop frame sensor. And you're going to want to see something that is in your normal field of view as you're just looking at the mountains or you're looking at your kids you're going to want a 35 millimeter lens but if you go to get a full frame sensor on your camera you're going to want a 50 millimeter lens so some of those choices vary on what that sensor is going to see based on your lens.
0: So is this a situation where camera companies try to maybe take advantage of people who don't know about sensor sizes and get them to, hey, all the specs look just like that, you know, Canon I saw and uh, I'm gonna pick this up, but they're really putting cheap sensors in?
1: You're going to have a cheaper camera overall if you have a cheap sensor. And there's a lot of places that, that look at different cameras and show you what images look like when they're finished. You have to be careful with some of those websites though, because the lens you put on it affects your finished image. So your sensor isn't everything. The lens you put on top of that sensor makes a huge difference as to what your picture will look like. So if you can only afford a Camera with a smaller sensor, don't worry about it. Spend the extra money and get better lenses because overall you're going to have better image as a result. Higher quality glass always trumps the larger sensor.
0: Nice. Good
1: to know.
2: Like you said, for the DSLRs, the crop sensor is like the standard kind of thing. Is there the mirrorless have the same kind of standard?
1: Yeah. Yeah, you can get anything from a micro four thirds to a full frame in any of the mirrorless cameras. Okay. Just as you would in even the point and shoot, that extremely high priced point and shoot that I talked about last week. Michael's still shocked about that. Still shocked. (laughs)
2: I've mentioned that multiple times throughout the week.
1: That one has a full frame sensor and it has a very large sensor.
2: Okay, that I guess that explains why
1: it's $5,000. <laughs> yeah, that definitely <laughs> sure. overall increases sure. the price because you're putting more money into the part that is capturing all of the data. The thing that we need to just kind of touch on is dynamic range. And dynamic range is how much detail you're getting in some of those shadows and bright areas. So larger pixels. So if you have a full frame that's 26 megapixels and a crop sensor, that's 26 megapixels. The pixel size is going to be larger on that full frame. It has the ability to let more light hit each one of those sensors. And as long as that sensor, like newer ones do, supports a wider range, it is going to give you more details in those shadow areas. So that's one thing to note. If you're looking at older cameras, The sensor quality is not going to be as good. So it may not support as much dynamic range for the same amount of megapixels as a newer camera will.
0: Nice. So if I'm going shopping and I want to pick up a decent camera, what kind of, what size sensor would I be looking for on the box?
1: I'd say for most people, a crop sensor is absolutely fantastic. The Micro Far Thirds, they make are a lot smaller, easier to pack around, but the size of a crop sensor in like your mirrorless cameras, they're so easy to hold and carry with you that for most people, I think you'd be great to go in that, that crop sensor range. Great for the price point and so much usability variability.
2: This is not necessarily related to like the exact megapixels and stuff, but like, is there a difference between what kind of sensor you'd want for video versus photos?
1: No, I don't think so. For video, I'd be more worried about the lens you're putting on top of it to get the look that you want, to get the feel of your video. Are you doing something like an unboxing or are you creating a movie type where you're wanting specific styles that for me all comes into lens choice and not really sensor choice. Okay,
0: cool. Nice. Well, thank you for filling our brains again, Wendy. And do you have an idea of what we might learn next week?
1: Mm, I think with all this talk about lenses, we should do a little bit in that direction.
0: I cannot wait. That's awesome. I think people are going to love that. Thank you so much, Wendy. And that's it. Our fourth episode of hardware addicts is a wrap. Thank you all for listening to the show and sharing it with your friends and in the community. We love all of the great feedback we're getting. And this show brings you your biweekly tech fix. So if you're not all lit up on tech yet, then be sure to check out all the great content that we have on the Destination Linux Network. Head to destinationlinux.network, not .com, .network, and check out all the great podcasts and YouTube partners available there. There is so much to fill your brain with each and every week.
1: Remember, there's no such thing as too much hardware. Learn, build, innovate, and grow.
2: I hope you enjoyed this super sensor sensory... Pers- I don't know. That's a weird way of saying it.
1: No, it was perfect. Totally flowed. Loved it.
2: Perfect. Keep it. Keep nice uh, it. Uh, scene, end, print. That's it. Sent to print. There we go. Anyway.
0: Are you going to do an outro or not?
2: <laughs> I said, I said, I said, send it to print. What are you talking about? Okay, fine. I'll do it. Fine. I'll do it.
1: Huh?
2: See you on the next episode for another super. Send it to print. You're
1: overthinking it now.
2: <laughs> I am. I'm am overthinking it. Okay. <laughs> see you all, see you all next episode in two weeks for another awesome filling brains episode of hardware addicts. Send to print.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm putting them all in Wendy. Just back
2: to back, like all of the,
0: all of the exits. I'm going to do them all. It'll Love teach it. them a lesson, you know?
2: No, no, you, you don't understand. I don't have shame. I don't care. It'll, I'll just laugh at it. <laughs>